0: Hello. This is William Fink, and this is Christiana Internet Radio. Today is Friday, September eighth, two thousand and seventeen. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. For those of you who have been tracking the happenstances which occurred to Clifton Emmeheiser. He is home now. He is here with Melissa and I at his home in Ohio. And we hope to move him to our home in Florida within the next seven to ten days. It will take us probably four or five days just to get back to Florida. Tonight we will be presenting Part 17 of Clifton Emmeheiser's series of essays titled, Special Notices to All Who Deny Two Seed Line. As I wrote many years ago in a paper titled, The Race of Genesis 10, we are only going to travel the history of this planet once. There are no second chances. Therefore, it is our obligation to correctly identify the parties mentioned in our scriptures and to correctly determine the roles that the races and families, which we may call men, for want of a better term in at least some cases, the the roles that they are fulfilling as history unfolds. We can only properly fulfill our Christian duty by meeting this obligation. There are wheat and there are tares. There are sheep, and there are goats. There are caterpillars, canker worms, poma worms, and locusts. And we are told that they would all devour the children of Yahweh in the last days. But Christians are nevertheless warned to come out from among them and touch not the unclean and to be a chosen race, a holy nation, and a peculiar people. If we understand the identity of the sheep, how can we fulfill our obligations if we do not understand the identities of the goats, the tares, the caterpillars, the cankerworms, the poma worms, and the locusts? And what are all of these aliens which have been brought in among us in the last fifty or sixty years if they are not the caterpillars, the cankerworms, the pommelworms, and the locusts? What are they if they are not the flood from the mouth of the Genesis chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 12 serpent? Having visited most of the eastern United States these last three months, it certainly seems as though we have been flooded in such a manner. As we have said here, In recent weeks, we are caught up in a war against our race. A war between our God and his enemies. Resulting from the enmity of Genesis 3.15. And there is no middle ground in this war. So now we must ask this. Does your Christian identity pastor have a magic negro? Or I should say a magic nigger. But for the sake of this podcast, I'll use the term Negro. This term appeared in several threads in the Christian Identity Forum, in the Christigenia Forum, I'm sorry, over the past month or so. The term Magic Negro. If you don't know what the term refers to, it can be found right on Wikipedia, where it is defined as a supporting stock character in American cinema who is portrayed as coming to the aid of a film's white protagonists. Magical Negro characters, who often possess special insight or mystical powers, have a long been a tradition in American fiction, probably since before Gone with the Wind, probably since the days of Shirley Temple. Ted Weiland sends Bibles to Nigeria, and he boasts about it, so we can only assume that his hope is to have a whole collection of magic Negroes. Wyland's magic Nigerian Negroes come to his aid by professing to be Christians, as if such a thing were possible, whereby he in turn attempts to convince the rest of us that Negroes can also be people. The magic negro functions in society as a seemingly intelligent, rational negro who can speak eloquently and maybe even learn some craft. And when he is put on display, the entire race of savage beasts suddenly achieves the status of people. The function of the magic negro in Christianity is to learn to repeat some Universalist favorite scriptures and talk glowingly about some Jesus. And all of a sudden, the entire race of savage beasts can suddenly be saved, go to heaven, and have eternal life. But in the meantime, most of the rest of the Negroes remain savages and criminals with no care for God, for morality, or for the rule of law, and they go on raping and pillaging and destroying the society which has been deceived by the single magic example. Every time the true nature of the Negro may be revealed through an honest assessment of his collective actions— The magic Negro is put on display as a distraction, which deceives white people with a false sense of the Negro potential for humanity. But the magic Negro need not even be a Negro. He may be a magic Indian, or a magic Chinaman, or he may even be a magic Latino. Any creature from any non-Adamic race of so-called men might serve as a magic Negro at any given time, which coaxes us into accepting these other races as people, admitting them into our society, and ultimately bringing them into our bedrooms. This is the inevitable result of the magic Negro, miscegenation. And even seeking the magic negro, we are seeking to compromise the word of Yahweh our God as we are trying to gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles. Doing that, we become scatterers instead of gatherers. The apostles of Christ worked for one brief generation, that's it, to bring Christianity to Europe. And at the instigation of the Jews... For 300 years, the pagans killed as many men and women who adopted the new creed as they could find. Yet the seeds which they had planted in the first century would not cease from producing fruit until all of Europe was Christian and developed into the greatest of civilizations. Europeans perpetuated Christianity and Christian morals and values on their own accord and continued to build their advanced society with no help from outsiders. Now, in modern times, the apostles of the Universalist Churches have tried to bring Christianity to Africans for over 500 years, sending them missionaries for generation after generation. But a self-perpetuating church never develops. There is constant need for more and more white missionaries, because left on their own, They do not perpetuate Christian morals and Christian values. And instead, they only struggle to maintain a pitiful semblance of society. Even with the aid of an unceasing flow of resources from outside. The seeds planted constantly wither, never producing one-fold fruit. Never mind the thirty, sixty, or hundredfold which is promised in the parables of Christ. This we may read in Mark chapter four. And he, meaning Yahshua Christ, began again to teach by the seaside. And there was gathered unto him a great multitude, so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea. And the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he taught them many things by parables. And he said unto them in his doctrine, Hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. And it came to pass, as he sowed, some, meaning some seed, fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came up and devoured it. And some fell on stony ground, where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up, Because it had no depth of earth But when the sun was up It was scorched And because it had no root It withered away And some fell among thorns And the thorns grew up And choked it And it yielded no fruit And others fell on good ground And did yield fruit That sprang up and increased And brought forth some thirty And some sixty And some a hundred Meaning a hundredfold And he said unto them, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Now perhaps, just perhaps, we can compare the seed which fell by the wayside to the people of the Near East and North Africa, where the fowls of the air, the seed of the serpent, which represents the descendants of the fallen angels, quickly eradicated Christianity in those places with the promotion of Islam and other false religions. The seed which falls among thorns may be likened to Christianity in Asia, where as soon as it appears, it is suppressed and destroyed by its rivals, something which has happened several times in history. The seed which was scorched is Christianity in sub-Saharan Africa, where it cannot take root and it withers as soon as the sower departs. Note that Christ did not suggest that the sower should return year after year to plant new seed after the old seed fails. But the seed which fell on good ground is Christianity in Europe, where it perpetuated itself and increased a hundredfold, and where it has flourished until modern times. At the present moment, however, Satan has gathered all the nations from the four corners of the earth against the camp of the saints, and they are being overrun with the same aliens who could never perpetuate the values or morals of Christianity at home. Of course, while Ted Weiland has been sending Bibles to Nigerians and bragging about it, he is only repeating the errors of the denominational churches, which they have been making for at least five or six hundred years. He too is dumping good seed on scorched ground, and it never takes root. But while Weiland may boast about his magic Negroes, as he uses them to promote universalism within Christian identity. Judaism has had its own magic Negroes, and they've been around for at least 2,000 years. They are called Falasha Jews, and they originated in Ethiopia, perhaps as far back as the 5th century before Christ. Now we shall take a look at Judaism's magic Negroes in the context of Ted Weiland's errant theology as we present the next portion of Clifton Emmeheiser's series Special Notices to All Who Deny, Two Seed Line, Part 17. Clifton begins by saying, because many incorrectly interpret Genesis 3.15 to mean to describe a personal, private war between one's spirit and one's flesh, I wish to cry out urgently and loudly to inform them that the enmity spoken of in that passage is a hate war to the death between two different walking, talking, breathing genetic family seedlines, and that hate was placed there by the Almighty Himself. Since the anti-seedliners, those who deny to seedline, willfully and arrogantly refuse to identify our enemy, they categorize themselves with those who serve Him not. Get away from me, I never knew you. Their message is an invitation for disaster. Genesis 3.15 says, in part, I will put, and our Maker never put enmity between our spirit and our flesh. Before making such an assertion, they should stop and think what they are accusing Him of doing. For that makes Him responsible for every sin which man has committed and continues to commit. Furthermore, If the enemy can get us all wrapped up in ourselves and convince us that the only war we are fighting is a spiritual war between the spirit and the flesh, we won't be of any use to the Almighty or to ourselves. And I must say that this is absolutely true. A few years ago, I did a presentation which was called Scatterers and Gatherers. And the premise of that presentation is that as long as we are concerned for our own salvation, we will be wrapped up in ourselves and have no real care for our brethren. But once we realize that all of our Adamic race shall indeed be saved, we can focus on what should be our greater concern to love, and to seek to edify one another, as we should not have to be wrapped up with ourselves. Continuing with Clifton, he says that with this paper, we will expand on Special Notice Part 16, where Ted Weiland foolishly tried to make it appear that the only difference between the wheat and the tares of Matthew Chapter 13 were righteous Israelites and wicked Israelites. Remarking, as he did in his book Eve, Did She or Didn't She on page 72, that instead, and Clifton is quoting Ted now, instead this parable of the wheat and the tares is simply contrasting righteous Israelites with wicked Israelites, much the same as the good and evil figs of Jeremiah 24. Clifton responds and says, it is evident that Wyland hasn't the slightest clue as to why Zedekiah and his company were listed among the naughty figs, or the bad figs. And here I think, here I honestly think that Clifton may have done a little better to realize that Jeremiah chapter 24 is not listing any Israelites as naughty figs. But rather, it is telling us that certain Israelites would be given over to the naughty figs with the realization that there are three parties involved and not two. Ted Weiland's argument disintegrates With all uncertainty, I'm sorry, with all certainty, it disintegrates, for sure. There are three parties in Jeremiah chapter 24, not just two. Ted wouldn't know where the third party was, or where it came from. But Clifton, even though he didn't pick up on that aspect of the argument, Clifton does identify the third party here very well. So he continues and he says, We noted that there were two factions at Jerusalem. And this these two factions are separate from the good and bad figs. One favoring diplomacy with Babylon and the other with Egypt. The house of Zedekiah advocating the later. After Nebuchadnezzar captured Zedekiah, killing all of his sons and gouging out his eyes... The remainder of that group forced Jeremiah, against his warning, to accompany them to Egypt. Upon Jeremiah's sailing to Ireland with Tehitephi, they fell under the judgment of the sword, famine, and pestilence. Had Wyland read and studied Jeremiah chapter 24, verses 8 and 9 thoroughly, he might have grasped the prophet's true message regarding the evil figs which says and as the evil figs which cannot be eaten they are so evil surely thus saith Yahweh so will I give Zedekiah the king of Judah and his princes and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in the land and them that dwell in the land of Egypt and I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse, in all the places where I shall drive them. And here we see that certain Israelites were given to the evil figs as a punishment, but they themselves were not evil figs. Let's read verse 8 again. And as the evil figs, as the evil figs, or like the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Surely thus saith Yahweh, So will I give Zedekiah the king of Judah, and his princes, and the residue of Jerusalem, that remain in the land, and them that dwell in the land of Egypt. It's not saying that these people are evil figs. It's saying that they're going to be given to evil figs there's a huge difference Clifton may have missed that in 2002 but his argument is still not completely faulty it's actually very good it only would have been stronger if Clifton had realized that then here we see that certain Israelites were given to the evil figs as a punishment but they themselves were not evil figs Paul made a similar analogy in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where he demanded that the Christian assembly put a sinner out of their midst, the fornicator, effectively turning him over to Satan, surrendering him to the evil world which remained outside of Christ. So there being three parties here, Judahites who were to be established, or good figs. Judahites who were to be punished by being given to evil figs, and the evil figs themselves, Weiland's claim concerning good and bad Israelites, falls apart, and we see a seed, which is evidently not the seed of the woman, is involved in the judgment of Yahweh. Commenting on the citation from Jeremiah, and concentrating on the judahites who were to be punished clifton next says that in analyzing this passage we see jeremiah's prophecy was directed at four categories zedekiah and some of his household his princes which is better rendered rulers under him the residue of jerusalem which included hittites and amorites citing Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 3 and 4, who had confusion of face, citing Ezra chapter 9, and were referred to as wild grapes in Isaiah chapter 5, in verses 2 and 4. I'm sorry, in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 2. And finally, the fourth group, them that dwell in Egypt. And as a digression, I would rather interpret the wild grapes of that passage in Isaiah as disobedient Israelites. And following that passage and the subsequent verses, the briars and thorns, which are also mentioned there, as the Hittites and Amorites of Jerusalem, which Clifton refers to here from Ezekiel chapter 16, which we will explain shortly. The confusion of face mentioned later in Ezra is the result of the people being a spoil for these Hittites and Amorites. Clifton continues by assessing what Jeremiah says in comparison to the claims of Ted Weiland. Weiland and his anti-seed line, Antichrist fellow travelers, refused to address these four categories of Judahites to be punished in Jeremiah chapter 24 in their proper context. Zedekiah was 32 years old when Nebuchadnezzar killed all of his sons and gouged out his eyes, leaving him with only daughters, the tender twigs of Ezekiel chapter 17. Other than Teatefi, and this name comes from Irish folklore. Other than Teatefi and her sister, we are not told how many, meaning how many daughters. The princes, the princes of Zedekiah, the princes were simply the political and religious leaders under Zedekiah, not necessarily royal family members. And that is true. After the campaigns of 605 and 597 BC by Nebuchadnezzar, and the removal of the royal family of Jehoiachin, along with 7,000 soldiers of Judah and the best craftsmen, only the poorest quality of people remained in Jerusalem, among them many non-Israelites, such as the, such was the residue of Jerusalem. And Clifton cites here, 2 Kings chapter 24. Namely, or more specifically, 2 Kings 24:14, Where speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, it says, And he carried away all Jerusalem, and all the princes, and all the mighty men of Valor, even ten thousand captives, and all the craftsmen and smiths, None remained, save the poorest sort of the people of the land. And Clifton continues, and he says, Additionally, after Jerusalem was depleted of most of its population, nearby peoples moved into their empty homes as a refuge from Babylon, thinking it safe, after Zedekiah was appointed king by Nebuchadnezzar. Even during the kingship of Jehoiakim, after Nebuchadnezzar's first campaign of 605 BC, there were the Rechabites of Jeremiah chapter 35 verse 11 who moved into Jerusalem, descendants of the Kenites of 1 Chronicles 2.55 and Genesis chapter 15, or Cain's bloodline. In Joshua chapter 15, Judges chapters 1 and 2, we are told that Judah would not drive out the inhabitants of the land, the Jebusites and other Canaanites, and these would remain as thorns and snares among them. Surely they must have been part of the residue making up the evil figs. Then we must remember the descendants of Shelah, the son of Judah by Shua the Canaanite, In addition, we must recall Solomon's affairs with non-Israelite wives, citing 1 Kings chapter 11. Undoubtedly, Clifton says, he had descendants by those wives living in Jerusalem during Jeremiah's time, citing Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 26. The idolatry which manifested itself under all of Judah's evil kings originated with Solomon's wives. Therefore, to believe that Jerusalem, as the Wylandites, the followers of Ted Wyland, proclaim, was made up of only pure-blooded Israelites, which he called righteous and wicked, is only a Mickey Mouse, childlike, fairyland pipe dream on the level of Alice in Wonderland or The Wizard of Oz. Clifton trying to stress the point that Ted Weiland's interpretation of scripture basically equates to a fairy tale. And Clifton says that the fourth category classified as evil figs in Jeremiah twenty four eight included them that dwell in egypt and actually the fourth category of those who were to be given over to the evil figs were them that dwell in egypt but clifton has nevertheless correctly identified the nature and character of the evil figs which those judahites who were to be punished were given over to as it is attested In Jeremiah chapter 2, in Ezekiel chapter 16, and also in the story of Daniel in Susanna. There were Canaanites amongst the Judahites of Jerusalem at that early time, and they were pretending to be pious followers of Yahweh. They were engaging in the civic life of ancient Israel. Now Clifton continues under the subtitle. Two elements in Jeremiah's prophecy. And he says, while both Jeremiah chapter 24, verses 8 and 10, and chapter 44, in various verses throughout the chapter, seem to indicate that all the evil figs would die by the sword, famine, and pestilence at that time. On the other hand, both passages contain a clause that the evil figs would be driven into all the nations and kingdoms of the earth as a proverb, a taunt, and a curse, citing passages from Jeremiah 24.9, 34.17, and 44, eight, And here Clifton cites Jeremiah chapter 44, as well as the parable of the good and the bad figs in Jeremiah chapter 24. And reading these passages, we must first remember that most of Judah was taken into Assyrian captivity many decades before Jeremiah began to write. And their fate, the fate of those people of Judah taken into Assyrian captivity, is counted with the other tribes of Israel. But now in 620 B.C. through 586 B.C. But now Jeremiah is dealing with the people of Jerusalem who were not taken into Assyrian captivity. And out of these are good figs, which are Judahites to be established later, and bad figs, as well as certain Judahites being given over to the bad figs. These are being dealt with in the Babylonian period, and where it refers to Judah throughout Jeremiah. It is only to the people of Judah who remained in Palestine over a century after the Assyrian captivity. So we read from Jeremiah chapter 44, where Yahweh says, from verse 12, and I will take the remnant of Judah, the remainder of Judah. What remainder of Judah? The remainder of Judah that was left after the Assyrian captivity. And I will take the remnant of Judah that have set their faces to go into the land of Egypt. In other words, not the whole remnant of Judah, but that party Clifton described that sought protection from the Egyptians against the Babylonians. That have set their faces to go into the land of Egypt to sojourn there. And they shall all be consumed, and fall in the land of Egypt. They shall even be consumed by the sword, and by the famine they shall die, from the least even unto the greatest, by the sword and by the famine. And they shall be an execration, and an astonishment, and a curse and a reproach. For I will punish them that dwell in the land of Egypt, as I have punished Jerusalem by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. So that none of the remnant of Judah, which are gone into the land of Egypt to sojourn there, shall escape or remain, that they should return unto the land of Judah, to the which they have a desire to return to dwell there, for none shall return, but such as shall escape. And we have to understand that wherever the Bible mentions a remnant, it must be taken in historical perspective. Here it refers to those Judahites who were not taken into Assyrian or Babylonian captivity. So it does not refer to all of Judah. So in reference to this and because Jeremiah chapter 44 is in a completely different context than Jeremiah chapter 24 Clifton continues, and he says, therefore, it is evident that these prophecies have both a short and long-term fulfillment. Matthew Henry's Commentary, Volume 4, on Jeremiah chapter 24, verses 9 and 10, says thus, quoting Matthew Henry, Doubtless this prophecy had its accomplishment in the men of that generation, Yet, because we read not of any such remarkable difference between those of Jeconiah's captivity and those of Zedekiah's, it is probable that this has a typical reference to the last destruction of the Jews by the Romans, in which those of them that believed were taken care of, meaning the Christians, But those that continued obstinate in unbelief were driven into all countries for a taunt and a curse. And so they remain to this day. And Clifton then responds to Matthew Henry's comments and he says, Rather, it was a sifting out of the racially impure. And this is certainly true. The word of Yahweh in Jeremiah was indicating that the racially impure, the bad figs, were going to be sifted out, but certain Judahites were going to be punished by being given over to them. Matthew Henry's opinion on this prophecy is in part substantiated, where Christ himself had used the same language in reference to his enemies as Jeremiah did in these prophecies where he said in Luke chapter 21, For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck, in those days, the days he's describing, which is when Jerusalem is encompassed with armies. For there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations. So in the diaspora of the Jews, all things written concerning the bad figs and the wicked remnant of Judah, which were given over to the bad figs, and are now, by this time, race mixed with the bad figs, would be fulfilled. Clifton now continues under the subtitle, The Evil Figs of Egypt. We should first note that once the disobedient of Judah were given over to the evil figs, it is appropriate to consider them as evil figs. So Clifton begins and he says under this subtitle, The Evil Figs of Egypt. When first researching this topic, I was convinced that the party that forced Jeremiah to accompany them to Tapanes in Egypt were those who eventually arrived and established a Jewish, or really Judean at that time, colony at Elephantine in Egypt. I no longer hold that opinion, and that's good because it wouldn't be true. Some Bible references, such as the Pictorial Bible Dictionary by Merrill C. Tenney, published by the Southwestern Company in 1966, also hold that position, the wrong position. Rather, it was mainly the Jews who returned from all nations to Jerusalem and attempting to go to Egypt, who worshipped the Queen of Heaven who fell under the curse of the sword, famine, and pestilence. The Penguin Pictorial History, I'm sorry, the Penguin Pictorial Historical Atlas of Ancient Egypt, says this under the title, The Saite Monarchy, Saite. I'm trying to pronounce, S-A-I-T-E, and Clifton quotes, there is evidence of Greek commercial activity at Naukratis as early as about 615 BC and during the reign of Amasis from 570 to 526 BC. It was officially instated as the center of Greco-Egyptian trade, partly of course to keep it within direct royal control. Other Greek communities settled at Memphis and elsewhere, alongside immigrant Phoenicians and Jews. And I would say that that's an error for Phoenicians and Judahites. Or perhaps, since the Phoenicians were Israelites, it's an attempt to distinguish them from Judahites, so as to find Jews in ancient history. But they weren't Jews at this time, they were Judahites. Actually, Greeks had a trade monopoly granted to them in Daphne, which was what they had called Tapanes, until they were removed by Pharaoh Amasis II. The deserted Greek areas are later mentioned by Herodotus, Book 2, paragraph 154. So neither the Greeks nor the Judeans who found refuge there after the fall of Jerusalem had stayed for very long. Continuing with Clifton, in his book, The Bible is History, on page 168, Ian Wilson places some of the quote-unquote Jewish immigrants, meaning the Judahite immigrants in Egypt, contemporary with Judah's evil king Manasseh. I will now present various documentation for this period, From the Erdman's Dictionary of the Bible, we get the following under Elephantine Papyri. A large number of papyrus documents and fragments, written in Aramaic during the 5th century BC, discovered at Elephantine, an island in the Nile River opposite Aswan, or the biblical city Syene, which became an asylum for Judean refugees after the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem. And that's the position that Clifton said that he used to hold, but which he learned is not true. Then from the Tyndale Bible Dictionary by Elwell and Comfort, under the same topic, Elephantine Papyri, we read Aramaic documents from the 5th century BC, discovered at Elephantine, an island in the Nile River. At the time of the document's writing, Elephantine was a Persian military outpost, manned in part by a group of Judean, and of course the commentary says Jewish, but it should be Judean or Judahite, Manned in part by a group of Judean mercenaries with their families. The documents numbering over a hundred belonging primarily to three archives. Two being familial or family related and one being communal community related. The archives contained many complete scrolls that were still tied and sealed at the time of their discovery along with numerous broken papyri and fragments. The manuscripts are of considerable archaeological importance. Several centuries older than most of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they portray the social, political, and religious life of a Jewish or a Judean community outside of Palestine. Several points of contact are made with the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, meaning historical references that can be verified in Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, I would accept what the Tyndale Bible Dictionary said, that the Judeans of Elephantine were mercenaries, rather than assuming, as Ian Wilson apparently had, that they were refugees from Judah. Clifton continues his citation from the Tyndale Bible Dictionary. Ancient Elephantine was located on the southern tip of a small island in the Nile River, a few kilometers north of the first cataract, opposite its twin city, ancient Syene, the modern Aswan, A-S-W-A-N. The Bible probably includes the twin cities of elephantine and syene in the two occurrences of the phrase from migdal to syene found in ezekiel chapters 29 and 30 that is from egypt's northern border to its southern border the city's name was an aramaic version of an egyptian name meaning city of ivories elephants being the source of ivory and was translated into Greek as elephantine. Because of its strategic importance on Egypt's southern boundary with Nubia, it figured repeatedly in Egypt's military history. Continuing with his citation, the discovery of the papyri the Elephantine papyri. Elephantine came into archaeological prominence with the discoveries of the papyri. The discoveries were made in three stages. The first group, to be published in 1906, had been gathered by purchases from antiquities dealers and was housed in the Cairo Museum. That first publication stimulated German and French excavations at Elephantine in the hope of discovering more papyri. The Berlin Museum was rewarded for its efforts with a second group of papyri published in 1911. Ironically, a group of papyri discovered in the late 19th century was the last to be studied and published. American scholar C.E. Wilboer purchased papyri in 1893 from some Arab woman at Aswan in storage until Wilbur's daughter bequeathed them to the Brooklyn Museum. They were finally published in 1953. Since 1912, other excavations had been mounted by the Pontifical Biblical Institute of Rome and the Egyptian government, but no further papyri were found. Clifton has a parenthetical remark there, or so they say. Then, a little later in the article, under the heading Jewish Colony, which we know should read Judean Colony or Judahite Colony, the Elephantine Jews worshipped in their own temple, which was dedicated to the Hebrew God, whom they call Yahu, a variation of Yahweh probably in the Aramaic language of the papyri. Political and religious leaders at Elephantine were in correspondence with officials in Jerusalem and Samaria. One document from Elephantine claims that the Jewish or Judean temple was temple there, meaning at Elephantine. The temple there was built during a period of native Egyptian rule Before the Persian conquest under Cambyses, who reigned over Persia from 529 until 522 B.C., that would give a date for the construction of the Elephantine Temple by the mid-6th century at the latest. Further on, under the title Elephantine Judaism, we read, in spite of the law of a single sanctuary found in Deuteronomy chapter 12, and in spite of the recent reforms of kings Hezekiah and Josiah in the 7th and 8th centuries BC that centralized worship in Jerusalem, the Elephantine Jews seem to have felt no wrong in having a temple in Egypt. Neither the German, French, Italian nor Egyptian Excavations located the Judean temple. But the documents record that the temple was oriented towards Jerusalem, meaning the papyri. The Elephantine Judeans may have recognized Jerusalem's primacy in religious affairs when the temple at Elephantine was destroyed by the priests of the Canaan Temple in 410 BC. An appeal was sent to Yohanan, the high priest, and Bagoas, the governor of Judah, seeking their permission and influence for its restoration. I would say that this was 45 years after the last action recorded by Ezra in the Old Testament and 80 years after the last action recorded by Nehemiah, or nearly 80 years. The appeal produced no response. Perhaps because of Jerusalem's leadership's disapproval of the temple in Egypt. A second appeal sent years later to Bagoas, governor of Judah, and to Deliah and Shelemiah, I'm sorry, sons of Sanballat, governor of Samaria, produced an oral reply recorded in a memorandum. The reply ordered the temple's rebuilding and the resumption of meal and incense offerings. Permission to reinstitute the burnt offering, however, was not given, perhaps as a concession to Egyptian or Persian religious convictions, and that's sheer conjecture. A deed for a piece of property dated to 402 BC mentions the Temple of Yahoo, implying that it was in fact rebuilt. That would be the very same time as... Xenophon's Anabasis, and the attempted overthrow of the Persian emperor by his brother Cyrus. The overthrow of, I believe, Darius III, or fourth, I forget, happened right around that same time. Moreover, intermarriage with surrounding peoples, forbidden in the Old Testament because it would lead to religious apostasy, had become a common practice at Elephantine. It was a contemporary problem in Israel as well, under Ezra and Nehemiah. Of course, this is 50 years after Ezra and 70 or 80 years after Nehemiah. Children of mixed marriages in Elephantine often had Egyptian names. And that's according to the source that Clifton is citing, the Tyndale Bible Dictionary. Clifton responds to this citation, to this article, and he says, If you read this very carefully, you will notice that Elephantine was located near Nubia, an area inhabited by many blacks. Of course, the Nubians were all black therefore we should not be surprised that many blacks today are claiming that they are Jews. In view of this, let's return to Weiland's statement about the bad figs. Weiland said, Instead, this parable of the wheat and the tares is simply contrasting righteous Israelites with wicked Israelites, much the same as the good and evil figs of Jeremiah chapter 24. Clifton exclaims, So much for his credibility. And Clifton is correct. Ted Weiland greatly oversimplifies the Bible in history. But his methods are convenient as he is constantly in search of the magic Negro. Clifton continues and he says another witness to this is the Collier's Encyclopedia of 1980, volume 13 page 575 under the topic the early Jews or of course Judahites or Judeans, documents discovered at Elephantine in Upper Egypt have revealed the existence here in the 5th century BC of a military colony of half-assimilated Jews, or Judahites, in the Persian service, with their own temple, looking, however, to authorities in Palestine for guidance. This temple, this temple at Elephantine, in my opinion, And this may also be conjecture, but to me it's always made perfect sense. In my opinion explains how the modern Ethiopian so-called Christians claim to possess the Ark of the Covenant. A replica temple would require a replica Ark. And indeed, if they possess one, that is the Ark that they possess. Ethiopian Jews and Ethiopian Christians alike probably descended in part from this community at Elephantine, and they are all, of course, bad figs. Clifton continues once more in his response to this citation, and he says that the events which happened in the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, and at Elephantine are good examples of what happens under the influence of such false teachers, meaning men like Ted Weiland. As I have pointed out before, the anti sea like Weiland and company are contributing as much towards multiculturalism as the Jews, substituting their kind of spiritual hocus-pocus for racial discipline opens the door to all kinds of miscegenation one shouldn't be surprised then by supporting the teachings of the anti-seedliners if he ends up with a half-breed grandchild the bottom line is the anti-seedliners are trying wittingly or unwittingly to lead the rest of us down the path of race mixing similar to that of elephantine in egypt And as we said earlier, once we accept the aliens among us as people, we begin to intermarry with them. A symptom of egalitarianism, which has been the inevitable outcome throughout world history. Clifton continues, and he says, As the residue of Jerusalem was made up partly from the Ten Canaanite nations, later designated seven. We really need to go back and review Genesis 15 verses 19 through 21 once again. The Kenites, the people of the land that was promised to Abraham. The Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites. Kenizzites and Cadmonites. there's two tribes that are not mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. So where did they come from? And the Hittites and the Perizzites, another tribe not mentioned in Genesis 10, and the Rephaim, they're mentioned in Genesis 6, they're called giants, and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. Clifton had also cited Ezekiel chapter 16 earlier in this essay, which says, and this is 1400 years after Genesis chapter 15, which says, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, thus saith Yahweh God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan, Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother a Hittite. Putting this into perspective is another passage from the contemporary prophet Jeremiah, which is from Jeremiah chapter 2, from verse 20. For of old time, the words of Yahweh, For of old time I have broken thy yoke, and burst thy bands, and thou said, I will not transgress. When upon every high hill, and under every green tree, thou wanderest, playing the harlot. Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, wholly a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? This is a clear reference to the race-mixing fornication that had occurred with these Canaanite tribes that were never entirely driven out of Palestine. So Clifton continues and he says, In Genesis chapter 15 are listed ten nations who then race mixed so much that in Deuteronomy chapter 7 there were left only seven. The Kenites, Kenizzites, and Rephaim who were mentioned in Genesis 15 but not in Deuteronomy 7 were completely absorbed by the other nations of this group from which the Jews are extracted and here we must note that while this is true groups of Kenites were still mentioned in later scriptures in Judges Samuel and in 1 Chronicles so that it cannot be assumed that the Kenites disappeared entirely as the Ted Wylans of the world often assert individual refame were also were also mentioned in later scriptures, such as in Samuel and in One Chronicles, where we see that Goliath and his brothers were Rephaim. so while they were perhaps no longer a nation with a presence in Palestine, significant enough to mention in the time of Deuteronomy chapter 7, they were still there. They were still present in Numbers. Continuing with Clifton, he presents a very appropriate view of this from another source. The Adam Clark's Commentary on the Bible, abridged by Ralph Earl, has this to say under the Kenites. Here are ten nations mentioned, Though afterwards reckoned but seven, referring to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and Acts chapter 13, probably some of them which existed in Abram's time had been blended with the others before the time of Moses, so that only seven out of the ten then remained. Clifton goes on and says, in the Peaks commentary on the Bible, on page 116, we find this about that mixed group of nations spoken of in Genesis chapter 15. When the Israelites entered Canaan, they found they a very mixed population, generally designated by the term Amorite or Canaanite. Clifton then says, we can see from this that the line of Cain, was assimilated into all of these peoples. Therefore, when any one of the ten, later designated as seven, when any one of the ten nations are mentioned, it automatically includes the line of Cain, as in Acts chapter 13, which mentions, which mentions the ancient division of Canaan. Although continuing to be designated as seven nations, as the race mixing persisted, many more were added to the list such as the Egyptians at Ezra chapter 9 verse 1 in other words in Ezra chapter 9 verse 1 Egyptians were rejected they were not accepted when as far back as the time of Moses individual Egyptians were accepted as Hagar was an Egyptian and Abraham was not a race mixer. And I must add, that we cannot forget about the Rephaim, who were found in the land of Canaan in Joshua's time, and later among the Philistines. The historical books also show that the Rephaim and Anakim giants, remnants of the giants of Genesis chapter 6, were the ruling class of Canaan, as exampled in the per- person of of Bashan he was a giant Clifton now continues under the subtitle an odd twist to the story a most unusual aspect to this story is the fact that the modern day Jews for the most part were not aware of the Elephantine connection the Elephantine connection to the Falasha Jews or Black Jews until the beginning of the 20th century This can be seen in the seven-volume set of books titled The History of the Jews by Heinrich Gretz. The set I have, the set Clifton has, was copyrighted in the year 1898. Now, Gretz had died in 1891, and I believe that most of this work was written in the 1840s. The first six volumes are the original set of history books. They then added a seventh volume to bring their history up to date, which is copyrighted in 1944. So the actual set actually only had six volumes. In the index for the first six volumes, no mention is made of the black Falasha Jews of Ethiopia. In the additional volume entitled A Century of Jewish Life, an update by Ismar El It says the following, quoting pages 419 and 420, Joseph Halivi, who lived from 1827 to 1917, the well-known Parisian Semitist, fancy language for Jew in France, had been sent to Abyssinia by the universal israelite alliance which was the largest organization of the time promoting zionism and global jewish supremacy he was sent to abyssinia in 1868 to study the falashas he brought important personal impressions from his travels but he lost his materials in consequence of the franco-german war the contract which had been made was not followed up. I'm sorry, the contact which had been made was not followed up. The falashes had for centuries manfully resisted the attempt of Christian missionaries to convert them, and their courage was now strengthened by contact with Jews. The reports of missionaries that there was a community of Jews who believed in Christ was proven false. Halevi never gave up hope for renewed contact and his pupil Jacques Faitlovich, undertook an expedition to the Falashas equipped by Baron Edmund de Rothschild. His report of the loyalty and persistence of the Falashas in their faith was stirring and called for immediate attention to the problem. But the alliance refused its help. It was Margolese who then aroused the interest of the Jews of Italy and Germany, and later those of the United States, to undertake missionary work among the Falashas. Young Falashas were educated in Europe, became teachers in the model schools founded with the assistance of the Italian government in Addis Adaba, or Abyssinia, the main city in Abyssinia and were enabled to send teachers educated there into the interior of the country and as a side note if you follow our ongoing series on the protocols of Satan this Joseph HaLevi has been mentioned in that series along with his Universal Israelite Alliance a group which he was a member of this is not a claim that the Jews did not know at all of the Falashas in Ethiopia before the 19th century, for they most certainly did. However, the Elephantine connection was not known then, and it remained unknown until the discovery of the papyri and the work done to decipher them in the early 20th century. Additionally, it is evident that after the emancipation of the Jews, the investigation of the Falasha by European Jewry, the Falashes the immediately became fashionable. So they became the magic Negroes of Jewry, at least for a time. They were, they were taken to Europe. They were being educated in Europe. They became teachers in the model schools founded with the assistance of the Italian government back in Ethiopia. So the Jews were using these Negro Jews not only to advertise the Negro Jews as examples to Europeans, but to control the education system in Ethiopia. That's pretty clear. Now Clifton responds and says, question, why don't the anti-Sea Liners present evidence like this last quotation? The reason is they are too busy debating their own personal twisted form of Judeo-Unchristian theology. And what Clifton is stating is that there is more to the story of the bad figs than is apparently known by the anti-Sea Liners. And the account of the Falasha Jews is a good indication of just how bad those figs would get, but Ted Wyland and his ilk are absolutely oblivious to all of this history. so Clifton continues because information concerning the Felacia Jews has only come forth within the last century. actually, it's only come forth in the West within the last century. Data concerning them is rather hard to come by. In his book A History of the Jews by Abram Leon Sackar, a Jew, we find this. The Black Falashes of Abyssinia were another ancient community historically allied to the Jews living by pure Mosaism. They were proud of their supposed descent from Menelak, son of the Queen of Sheba by Solomon, a myth which is absolute conjecture and can never be proven. It's just a nigger story. To this, Clifton responds and says, the Philashes couldn't have been practicing pure Mosaism, for Moses wouldn't have allowed a Negroid Mamser into the congregation. Citing another Jewish source, Clifton says, in her book, The Story of the Jew by Elma Ehrlich Levinger, 1936, she makes the following comment about the Falasha Jews under the heading, The Wandering Jew, on page 13. In Abyssinia, you would meet the Falashes, black Jews who have almost forgotten their Judaism, who in every way but a few religious rites, resemble the dark-skinned, thick-lipped natives among whom they have lived so long. In response to this, Clifton says, I would compliment Elma ehrlich Levinger on her first chapter heading title as the wandering Jew fits... Cain's descendants perfectly and actually other Jews of the same period had used the same language in reference to themselves. Abba Eben in his book and also in a television series titled Heritage Civilization and the Jews all but admitted that the modern day Jews are not Israelites but then falsely claimed lineage to Father Abraham. At the time Abba Eben was writing his book, many of the Jews were not sympathetic with allowing the Flasha Jews into their ranks. Since then, however, they have recognized them and have allowed them to immigrate into Palestine as full-fledged Jews. Another enlightening book discussing the papyri found at Elephantine is The Dictionary of New Testament Background by Craig Evans and Stanley Porter where it says at the time of the babylonian conquest some jews fled to egypt aramaic papyri of the 5th century bc give evidence of a jewish military colony at elephantine a colony that included a jewish temple and of course Judean or judahite would be the appropriate term clinton says also on page 574 of the dictionary of new testament background under the title jewish history of the persian period extra biblical sources we read the extra biblical sources include the papyri left by a judean colony in egypt and elephantine this provides valuable original material especially in the way of legal documents and references to the colony itself but little of it throws direct light on events in palestine a number of coins were issued in judah itself and mention the name of the province yehud a few mention hezekiah the governor and there is one with the name of johanan the priest the judean military colony lived on the island of elephantine in southern egypt It may have been founded before the fall of Jerusalem in 587 BC, although its origins are obscure. They worshipped Yahweh, but did so in their own local temple. When this was destroyed as a conspiracy of the priesthood of the local Egyptian cult, they wrote to the governor asking permission to rebuild it. They also wrote to the high priest and his companions, the priests, or in Jerusalem, and to Astan, the brother of Anan, and the nobles of the Jews, or Judahites, and to Deliah and Shemaiah, sons of Sambalat, governor of Samaria. Their letter indicates that the high priest, the other priests, and the Jerusalem nobility, were in charge of the community even though a Persian governor had been appointed over the province. It also shows, in contrast to the book of Nehemiah, that Sanballat was an important official in the Persian local government. Interestingly, the Jerusalem establishment did not reply, perhaps because they were opposed to the Elephantine Temple. Let me say that the Sanballat of The time of the Elephantine papyri is, as I've said before, 70 or 80 years after the historical Nehemiah. The only record of an answer is a memorandum jointly from Bagohi and Deliah permitting the temple to be rebuilt and resume some offerings, but not those of blood sacrifice. Clifton continues and says that Ian Wilson's The Bible is History, published in 1999, makes the following observations concerning the Elephantine papyri, and I, he makes a parenthetical remark here, and I, meaning Clifton, agree to some extent. On pages 168 and 169, They came to Egypt to help Pharaoh Sameticus I who ruled from 664 to 610 BC, to help Pharaoh Sammeticus I fight the Nubians to the south. This far-flung Hebrew colony was not only Yahwist, a reference to followers of Yahweh, suggesting that it may have offered its services to Sammeticus quite independently of Manasseh, Manasseh the king of Judah at the time, but also built its own temple of Yahweh on the island. There can be no doubt about this since one of the papyri, datable to 407 BC and preserved today in Berlin State Museum specifically complains of the very recent destruction of the temple of Yahweh, the god which is in Elephantine. Furthermore, today's leading Jewish papyriologist Beza- Bezalel Portin, the name of a Jew, right? Collating the papyri's various references to this edifice has determined that this temple had a cedar roof just like its counterpart in Jerusalem, that it matched its dimensions very closely and was oriented to Jerusalem. This ancient community of Jews or Judahites subsequently journeyed to and settled in Ethiopia, as the Falashas, and of course the name Falasha probably came much later. Clifton concludes and says, an informative source running 13 pages on Elephantine is The Bible and Archaeology by J.A. Thompson. On page 224, the English translation of the Elephantine Papyri says, Our fathers built this temple in the fortress of Elephantine, back in the days of the kingdom of Egypt. And when Cambyses came to Egypt, he found it built. Cambyses ruling from 529 to 522 BC. Evidently, the temple at Elephantine must have been built somewhere between 590 and 525 BC. Clifton says, I'm also persuaded that the Almighty stirred up Cyrus, king of Persia, to proclaim only the rebuilding of the temple at Jerusalem, not Elephantine. Referring to 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and Ezra chapter 1. Making those at Elephantine evil figs. In other words, Clifton infers that they were not operating under the providence of Yahweh. So they were working against him. Clifton concludes by saying that the object of this presentation is to demonstrate that there is more to Jeremiah chapter 24 than what Ted Wyland claims. And in other words, the evil figs of Jeremiah are still with us today. Of course, they are with us in many other forms, and can be traced not only to European Jewry, but to the countless conversos among European Christians, Catholic and otherwise. Until we get straight the racial message of the Bible, and identify all of the parties of Scripture correctly, we will never be of any use to Yahweh our God when we get the call to arise and thrash, to come out of her my people, and to pay unto our enemies double as they gave. unto us. Ted Wyland and all who follow him will certainly be on the downside of those events unless they repent. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh the God of Israel and good night.